0: And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them, get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And it's always just extra fabulous to hear the Word of God and then to read it with your own eyes. It goes even deeper into our lives. So avail yourself of the Bible. And then if you don't own one, please receive that as a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. And... uh, meet with God regularly uh, in that book. 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. The apostle Peter writes inspired by the Holy Spirit, "Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets" And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this revelation of your will and of your heart this morning and these nine verses of your book. And, Lord, so much is contained here, and we pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts and our spirits fully to receive all of it, that you would take it off of this printed page and that you would give it a living, working, daily place in each one of our lives Thank you for this passage, what it is intended to teach us. We pray, Lord, in the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that it would teach us just those things this morning. Speak, Lord, your servants heareth. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this section of his letter, the Apostle... Peter reminds us as God's people of a couple things. Number one, of Jesus' return at his second coming, and then also of God's judgment that is going to come upon this world for its sin and for its rebellion against him. And this speaks of that in verse 7 and also again in verse 10, which is a passage we'll get into next week, Lord willing. Peter reminds us that... The uh, warning of this judgment, it marked the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah spoke of a future judgment upon the world. Jeremiah did the same. Daniel did the same. Joel, Amos, Zephaniah all did the same. But not only the Old Testament prophets spoke of a coming judgment, but the apostles did as well. And the apostles were carriers of the message of Jesus, which means that Jesus spoke of his second coming to this world and also of a future judgment that would come into this world. Of this coming judgment, Jesus himself uh, spoke just, most specifically, just a couple of days before his crucifixion. And on the final week of his life before his death upon the cross, Jesus never spent a night in Jerusalem. He spent every day in Jerusalem, but never a night in Jerusalem. He would minister in the city and then leave through the Kidron Valley, cross the Mount of Olives to the east, and then go into the city of Bethany where there was a family that loved him there. Not too many people loved him in Jerusalem at this point. And he went into Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus had a home, and he and the disciples spent the night each night uh, of the week prior to his crucifixion. On one of those days, just a couple of days before his crucifixion, Jesus came into the city and he began to teach. And each of the three major sects of uh, Judaism at the time, their leaders came to Jesus, interrupted his public ministry. They were very threatened by his popularity, very threatened by his teaching. And each one, in turn, asked him a question in an attempt to publicly humiliate him, to ask him a question that he would kind of fumble or fail. They were very crafty questions that he would mess them up and then he would be more uh, less esteemed in the eyes of his followers. And each one of the leaders of those groups failed miserably and by the time they got done, there, their respect for Jesus was even more immense and off the graph, and the disrespect for uh, these leaders and their opposition of Jesus was uh, just as great in the other direction. And so Jesus then leaves on this particular day, leaves the area of the temple area in Jerusalem, begins to make his way toward Bethany. And as he makes his way with the disciples, they pass uh, the temple. Jesus spoke to these religious leaders, the leaders of these religious sects, and he had told them, he rebuked them for their rejection of him. And, and, And the fact that they failed to recognize him as the Messiah, he rebuked them for their hostility toward him. And Jesus prophesied of a judgment that would come upon them that would also include the desolation or the destruction of the temple. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house, speaking of the temple, is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he speaks this, of this coming destruction of the temple to these Jewish religious leaders. Then he leaves the area of the temple, begins to move off of the grounds, and in doing so passes the temple accompanied by his disciples. And as they pass by the temple, Jesus' disciples are really thinking about what he just said to the Jewish religious leaders. They are mulling over in their minds his prophecy concerning the coming destruction of the temple. It was simply not possible in their minds that that temple would ever be destroyed. It was uh, something like... F- Fifty years in the building. It was absolutely magnificent. The The size of the temple, the scope of the temple was amazing. Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote concerning the stones that were part of the foundation of the temple and the retaining walls around it and, and the building itself. Many of the stones were as much as 40 feet long, 12 feet wide. 20 feet tall, uh, some of them exceeding 165 tons, each in weight. And so when they pointed out to Jesus as they passed the temple, they pointed out the greatness of the stones to Jesus. And it was their polite way of allowing Jesus to backtrack on his statement that the temple would be destroyed. That maybe that was something he ought to rethink in light of the actual construction of the temple. Because again, in the minds of the disciples, it seemed fully impossible that the temple could ever be destroyed. Number one, who could destroy it? And then number two, who would destroy it? Even if they were invaded from a, a, a nation far away and they came in and they conquered Jerusalem... What they would do is simply the invading force would not destroy a building like that. They would simply put it to another use. No one would waste a building like that. And so this was all going through their mind. And as they pointed out the greatness of the stones, Jesus understood the implications of what they were trying to say to him. And he told them in Matthew chapter 24, he said, Do you not see all of these things, these stones, this building? He said, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus takes and not only doubles down on his first prophecy that the temple would be destroyed, but he gives the additional insight... And the additional insight that he gives concerning the destruction of the temple makes the likelihood of it even more unlikely that not only will the temple be destroyed, but it will be so completely destroyed that there will not be one stone left upon another. In other words, a complete destruction. And so essentially Jesus was communicating to his disciples. He said, take a look at those stones. They seem so sure, so permanent so immovable, so forever, so unending. I know it's inconceivable to you that this could ever cease to be a building in the, in the light of them. That's the appearance of it. This is going to outlast all of the ages. That's what everybody thinks of them, but don't you think of them in that way. The destruction of this temple will be so great, so complete, that not one of these stones that you're so impressed with will be left one upon another. And when they heard him add this kind of detail to his prophecy, they had to think he was really kind of crazy. Nothing—it is impossible. Nothing could be more sure in the mind of the Jew than the permanence of that temple. Not one stone left upon another, impossible. And yet that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D., less than 40 years after Jesus' declaration when a Roman general by the name of Titus was sent into Jerusalem with the 12th and the 5th and the 10th Roman legions to bring an end to a Jewish revolt against Roman rule that had begun years earlier but was now completely concentrated in the capital city of Jerusalem. And after a long siege by the Romans of the city of Jerusalem that... Uh, included many, many bloody battles and really, really embittered men on both sides of the battle. When it became apparent that victory was inevitable for the Romans, Titus, the Roman general, did not want to destroy the temple. He did not want to defile the temple. He knew it's just a matter of hours now before we break through this outer wall of Jerusalem and we come in these Roman legions who were trained to kill and it will be a terrible slaughter and and I don't want to... his In his mind, he didn't want to even defile the temple, let alone to destroy the temple. And so he called upon the Jews to surrender and if they would not surrender, then to come outside of the gates of the city and fight out in the open so that nothing in the city would be... Uh, defiled and his offer was refused by the Jews and the Romans ultimately broke through the wall, came in and really a a great, great vengeance and we're told by Josephus that over a million Jews died in Jerusalem in the series of battles leading up to the final one and that didn't even count the Roman losses. And as a result of taking over the city of, of Jerusalem And the area of the temple, the temple caught on fire and ultimately began to burn. Uh, Great amounts of gold made up its construction on the inside. That gold then melted down into the cracks between the stones. Roman soldiers were paid by Rome uh, a salary, but a part of their... Uh, you know, salary was also whatever they could kind of get from whoever they conquered. And so all of this gold is between these stones. They proceeded to topple every single stone to get the gold from between them. And it wasn't just a desire for gold. These Roman soldiers were enraged and furious. And here was this great symbol of the Jews. And they had lost so many of their Brothers in this battle that they considered to be needless, that they didn't want them to have a temple, not one stone left upon another. And so they did. They destroyed it exactly as Jesus had said, not one stone left upon another. And it was in that context that Jesus then went on to deliver, speaking of this destruction of the temple, that he went on to deliver to his disciples what we know as the Olivet Discourse, which is. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, in which Jesus essentially declares that what was true of that ancient Jewish temple will one day be true of the whole wide world, that it is going to come to destruction. Why? Because for all of this world's appearance of permanence, the appearance that it will go on indefinitely, it will not. Because this world is, and increasingly so, it is built upon the same things that that ancient Jerusalem and that ancient temple were built upon, and that is rebellion against God and the rejection of His Son. It's an awesome thing and a great privilege to travel to Israel and to tour the land. And it's a great and awesome thing to stand on the Mount of Olives to the east side of the city of Jerusalem and to be able to look down on that temple mount where that Jewish temple once stood and to see to this day there is no Jewish temple at that site and to realize that it's exactly as Jesus said would be the case and then to realize that what Jesus has said about God's judgment of the earth will occur just as surely as the destruction of that temple. And one day the pride of man, the sin of man and his rebellion against God is going to come to an end. In the end, God does win. It's easy to think, you know, because we have elections and all around the world and people come into power and then they're out of power and they make decisions and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes it's easy to look at human history as just this haphazard thing that's just kind of unfolding randomly, you know, before our eyes, kind of a happen chance. But that isn't the case. The fact of the matter is, is that human history is marching slowly but surely toward an end. And not just any old end, but it is marching toward a God-appointed end. And you notice in verse 3 that Peter teaches that there will be a last days, that the, num- the, the history of this world, the length that in which this world is going to exist, is something that is finite. It has a period that it will be known as the last days. Jesus is not going to allow man's rebellion. Against God on this planet to continue forever. He will bring it to an end and He will establish His rule or His kingdom on the earth. It's called the thousand year reign of Christ. And then ultimately, this fallen world and this fallen universe that's tainted by sin, it's going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth, which Peter tells us in the next section, verse 13, in which righteousness dwells. No more sin. No more rebellion. No more crime. No more war. No more disease. Anybody smacking their lips inside their heart? No more victims of crime. No more aging. No more false teaching and teachers and spiritual deception. Nothing false of that vein any longer. No persecution of the righteous ever again. And that's the hope and the confidence that every Christian has about the future. And it's not just any old confidence, it's a confidence that God has given to us. But while our confidence in the the idea of Jesus' return and the idea of a coming judgment is significant to us and embraced by us, Peter tells us that it's met by others with scoffing. And he mentions scoffers in verse 3. And the word scoff means to mock or it means to ridicule. Someone has said that a scoffer is someone who treats lightly what ought to be taken seriously. And that's very true and most true of anyone who scoffs at the Word of God and the promises of God. You notice in verse 4 that these scoffers, they scoff at two things. They ridicule specifically two things. Number one, the idea of Jesus' return. And, And they do so with this kind of thought. Where is the promise of his coming? In other words, if he hasn't returned by now, then he's not coming. The second thing that they scoff at is the idea of a coming judgment, the idea that God is involved in human history, that there is a God who watches this world, not just nationally and internationally and geopolitically, but watches each and every individual human life. A God who has a standard of right and of wrong, and a God that there exists a God who will actually one day judge sin and rebellion. All of that is an absolute folly to these scoffers. There is no God in their mind. all Only natural law unfolding day by day as has always been the case. And so they will mockingly ask, where is this uh, coming that Jesus promised? And then they will declare, for since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, as long as recorded history, all things continues, just as they always have. There is no God. There's no evidence of God. There is no evidence of God intervening in human history under any circumstances, much less under the circumstances of judgment and All we see in life instead of a God are the laws of nature unfolding day by day as they always have. And because of that, we can live any way that we want and not be concerned about a future judgment. That's the scorn of the scoffers. Peter then, and Peter is acting very much as an apologist in this passage. He informs us as Christians. He's not writing to the scoffers. He's writing to Christians He informs us as Christians to realize that that scorn or that scoffing, it comes out of a bias. And it comes out of a desire on the part of the scoffer to continue to walk in their sin without having to interrupt their sin or be convicted by their sin so that they can follow their own lusts. In other words, he tells us as Christians, don't be bowled over by these arguments of scoffers. We should look and, and view the increase of scoffing toward this idea of God and the God of judgment and the return of Jesus Christ as, and the fact that it is growing stronger and stronger and stronger even as that judgment is approaching nearer and nearer. Ironically, we are to view that as a, another sign that the end of the age is nearing. Jesus uh, spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned, But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, Jesus speaking of himself. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. In other words, Jesus taught that there's no good reason for rejecting him and his salvation, no good reason for rejecting his call upon man to repent of their sin and to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. And since there are no good reasons for rejecting Jesus since there are no light reasons for rejecting Jesus, then there are only bad reasons, evil reasons, dark reasons behind any rejection of Jesus as a person's Lord and Savior. And Jesus is saying that one day all rejection of Jesus will one day be exposed for what it is, and that is a love of sin and a love of darkness. That's behind it all. And, in heaven, you know, it's like, uh, fool me once, shame on, you know, you fool me twice, shame on me. Heaven isn't fooled at all by the heart of man. And when God looks at the heart of man and the heart of man that rejects the teaching, the perfect life of Christ, and, and the words and the invitation, the salvation that's found in Christ, heaven says, when, when that occurs, that occurs because there is some sin or some selfishness that that person is not wanting to lay down. They love that more than they love God. It all rolls back to darkness. Now, notice in verses 5 and 6 what these scoffers, Peter says, choose to deliberately ignore. He said, number one, Peter writes in verse 5 concerning their claim that there is no God, that they're one day going to have to give an answer to, uh, that everything in life is just simply following the laws of nature. Well, Peter responds to that in essence in verse 5 and says, yes, the universe and the world does follow laws of nature. There are seasons. The ocean does have tides. There, there are the four seasons that we have in the course of the year. There is the sun, the moon, the stars, the orbits, all of those things. There are laws of nature that we all observe. But who created all of that nature and who created all of those laws? And then who produced the design Behind all the laws of nature that all of us witness every single day. And his point is that God did. And so they deny the existence of God because if God did exist, then they'd have to be, they would be accountable to him, which means they'd have to give up their sins. And so a person is free to reject the existence of God, but they cannot do it. Logically, and Peter argues for the existence of God on the basis of creation, on the basis of uh, design here in verses, five, in, in verses 5 and 6, in verse 5 specifically. Everywhere you look in life where you see creation, there is a creator. When you look at a bridge, you don't say, Man, how did that just pop out of nowhere before you go over it? they realize there's a creator behind that bridge. When we see a jet plane, there's a creator behind that that jet. When we see a home or a skyscraper, we know there's a creator behind that thing that's been created. And everywhere we look in all of life, anywhere we see creation, a painting, anything, a piece of music, anywhere we see creation, we realize that that is not self-existence or spontaneous in its existence, that there is a creator behind that creation. And all Peter is saying is that what we accept about everything in life, everywhere in life, that we simply transfer that to the laws of nature and to creation itself. And what we know to be true of a bridge or a jet to then take and say that same thing must be true of this earth, of the heavens, of the universe, all of this creation that I'm seeing, there must be a creator behind all of it. Always creation speaks of a creator. There is never an exception to that observation. Then Peter goes on and in the same way and declares... In essence, that everywhere we look in life and we see design, we realize there is a designer behind it. Everywhere we see design in life, we know that somebody designed that design. Take an iPhone. Again, take a jet plane. But nobody would hold an iPhone in their hand and not realize there is unbelievable design in this. And there is a designer behind this instrument that I'm holding. It's not self-existent. It didn't create itself. And, And so... Peter is again saying, when we look at the earth, not only its existence, but the design, the seasons, the distance of the earth from the sun that can allow for life without us being any hotter than we already are in the central valley in the summer. All of these things as we look at how all of this is so interconnected, the design is unbelievable. If you want to, and if you want to, explore design through the telescope or through the microscope. It's mind-boggling whatever direction you want to go in. And all he's saying is we accept everywhere in life that where there is design, you have a designer. So why not carry from the things that are in our house, carry that then to nature and all that we see around us all of the time. The creation and the design of creation speak of a creator, and they speak of a designer. I remember talking with someone one time, and and um, uh, and and I argued for the existence of God on the basis of just as Peter does here, on the on the basis of creation and design. And she said, well, that's just a philosophical argument. So I, you, you can call it whatever you want. And I don't know, you know what's said about it in a philosophy class or anything like that. But it's God's argument. So it doesn't matter if you've been briefed on the argument. What's wrong with the argument? It's so simple. We can go into the second grade Sunday school class and they can all understand it in there. And even a Ph.D. can understand it. And I'm not comparing the two, but sometimes we all have our blind spots. But anybody can understand that. Creation always speaks of a creator. Design always speaks of a designer. And not only that, but the creator is always greater than the creation. And the designer is always greater than the design. That's why you never worship the creation. It's illogical. That's why we don't worship the rose. That's why we don't worship Yosemite. That's why we don't worship the ocean or nature or even angelic beings or whatever it might be. Because to worship anything that's been created is illogical because the one who created it is greater still. So you're always going to want to attach your worship to that one. And that one is the God of the Bible, the Creator, of the heavens and of the earth. And then Peter, in verse 6, he addressed their claim, the claim of the scoffers, that all things just go on as they always have based upon the laws of nature. There's no proof of the existence of God, no proof that He has ever intervened in human history actively for judgment or otherwise. And Peter reminds us of a very glaring, And apparently a deliberate oversight on their part known as the flood in Noah's time when God did judge the whole world for, in order to punish wickedness. And thus Peter is arguing here if God did it once, he certainly could do it again. And indeed he will because he has promised uh, to do just that. So it's interesting to look at Peter and the Holy Spirit within him, (laughs) that both of them are creationists and believers in the universal flood. And that's good enough for me, by the way. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Peter tells us what we as Christians need to remember in the face of this kind of scoffing. Because this goes on all of the time. And so it happens in academic centers, it happens in entertainment, it happens all over the place. And so here is what Peter tells us that we need to remember as Christians in the face of this kind of scoffing. Number one, in verse 7, and he repeats much the same thing in verse 10 with greater detail, he says, coming judgment is sure. No matter who scoffs, how many, it doesn't matter at all. How do you think about how many people scoffed at Noah as he built that ark? Only eight people survived. The whole world was wrong. Eight people were right because eight people put themselves on the right side of God's Word. So it doesn't matter what people believe or what they think or what they scoff at or any of these things. The world is preserved for a fiery judgment. God is going to destroy this world. He's going to destroy this universe and because it's tainted by sin. And it's going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth. Again, verse 13, wherein righteousness dwells, one that will be untainted by sin. People think, wow, how could God destroy the heavens and the earth? Well, he created it, so that'll be easy enough to create a new heavens and a new earth. But the destruction of it won't be... Uh, Uh, Hard at all. It's a fascinating verse in the book of Colossians concerning Jesus, and it speaks of him and says, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And the word consist means to be held together. And the Holy Spirit declares that Jesus holds everything together. It's fascinating when you look at the uh, atomic substructure and the substructure of the atom is made up of protons uh, which have a positive charge. So you have opposites attract and and likes, uh, you know, repel if you ever had a couple of magnets as a kid and you would try to put the likes together and you couldn't quite get them together if they're strong enough magnets, turn it around, opposites click, you know, uh, very, very tight. And that's a law that... Uh, goes uh, on, and say, uh, science has yet to discover the, the mystery of how within the atom these positive charged protons uh, maintain a closeness to one another when they should be repelling one another. And it uh, remains such a mystery that scientists believe that there was an atomic glue that was a part of holding the whole thing uh, together because it shouldn't hold together as you would look at it. But we know why it's held together. And God tells us in His Word. And it's held together because Jesus is actively holding every cell in this, every atom in this universe. He's holding it, uh, all of it together. And then one day all He has to say is release and let go of it. And it will be an exact description of verse 10, which we'll look at maybe next week. The whole world will simply explode in this gigantic, um, uh, fiery uh, destruction. It'll just be like a gigantic explosion. The whole thing is, is gone, and then it gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. The second thing that Peter speaks to us here about that we're to remember in the face of scoffing is He answers this question for why the Lord is so long in His coming. You know, so Jesus, is, you Christians, you've been talking about Jesus coming back for how many years? You got crazy people in the whole thing, and 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 all. This. If he if he was coming back, he'd have been back by now, and he's not coming back. So let's go get a brewski and hell, you know, whatever thing. And and so, why so long in His coming? And He gives two answers, verse eight. First, because he measures time differently than we do. And he quotes Psalm 90, verse 4. With the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. In other words, he he does not operate within time the way that we do. And so here it's been 2,000 years since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 2,000 years, we think, why, we're waiting. This is incredible. How long we've been waiting. It's been two days to God. And the point that Peter's making here is that, about God is that time is not as big a concern with God as it is with us. There's something more important to God than the amount of time that is passing before Jesus returns and before that ultimate judgment. And the most important thing to God is the salvation of men, women, and children. And that's what he addresses in verse 9. He delays his coming not because he's lost interest in the world or in his prophecies. He delays his coming and his judgment not because he lacks the power to do both and to do both effortlessly. But Peter informs us he does so because of his long-suffering, because of his patience. But nobody should view this as slackness on God's part, that he's incapable of or he is uh, distracted now. He will keep his promise. And so this, his delay has nothing to do with his lack of power or determination on his part, but with his love and his long-suffering. He delays his judgment for the sole reason that he wants to give people a longer opportunity to be saved. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not come to a place where you have accepted God's assessment of you as a sinner, and then the recognition that your sin has separated you from the single great relationship that you've been created for, and that is a relationship with God. But that God loved you and your soul so much that He sent His Son to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for your sin, and that He was buried and He rose again on the third day, and you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, as the salvation that satisfies heaven, if you have never done that, and if you do that this morning, then God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life. You'll be born again. A new nature will come inside of you. Altogether new nature from God will come inside of you, and you begin a relationship with God. If you have never done that, and you are wondering why God is taking so long for Jesus' second coming and the judgment of the world, you say, what is the reason for that? You can just take your finger and just point it right at you. You are the reason for the delay. You are not saved yet, and God wants you to be saved The Bible says that one day there's going to be the fullness of the Gentiles that will come in. That is, the last person that God knows will be saved prior to the rapture of the church before he then pours his judgment out on this earth. And there's going to be some Gentile, maybe in a room like this, maybe in the room here today, or somewhere on the other side of the world, that they're going to bend their knee and their heart to God and they're going to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. God will will know at that point, not one person will come to know me prior to the rapture of the church, though many will during the tribulation. He he recognizes the fullness of the Gentiles. The body of Christ at that time is complete. He will take us out of this world, and then his judgment will unfold. And somewhere... And the only reason that we sit in a, this room here today is Christians, that that hasn't already happened, is because someone, the last person to be saved before all of that unfolds, hasn't been saved yet. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you might be the very person that's holding everything up. No pressure, but pressure. I got going with the Lord in 1980. You know, where you kind of beforehand, you think you might have been saved, but uh, probably not. And then at that point, I know, okay, I'm in. This is the real deal for me. So in 1979, I was holding the train up. People could have been thinking in 1979, why isn't Jesus back yet? And, and the whole thing unfolding and all, what in the world? And I'm sitting there over in Napa, California, just kind of going through the day. Still on my search for the meaning of life. And then one day I walk into a church just like this and I find out what it is. And I give my life to the Lord. And how many people in 1980 gave their life to the Lord? Now, after we've been saved for a while, we want Lord to, the Lord just come in and just hammer this place like you can't. Call in the airstrikes. We want to see flames and napalm in all directions, you know, because we're in. But he delays because he knows there are more to come into the kingdom of God. And if you're unsaved in this room, now we're waiting for you. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you sit and you say, you might think to yourself, what is the will of God from my life. I don't know all of it, but I know the most important one. He is not willing that you would perish, but that all would come to repentance. What is His will for you? That you would become saved this morning and receive His Son into your life. He's not willing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. One of the big beefs that people have with God, the God of the Bible, I can't believe in a God of the Bible. Anybody that would send people to hell and judge and that whole thing. I mean, I'm more enlightened and progressive than all that. Well, enlightened and progressive on everything but the Bible. God does not send anyone to hell. He does... Confirm reservations. And all of us make our own reservations for eternity. And then he just honors them at the judgment seat of Christ. But he doesn't send anyone. Do you realize in the light of verse 9, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If God had his will in every human life, there wouldn't be a single person in hell this morning. Not one. They are there against His will. He laid the blood and the sacrifice of His Son between every person and the judgment that our sin deserves. He has done everything but put us in a headlock and force us to trust in Christ to keep us from an eternity of judgment. And He will not force us into His family. He won't do it. He gives us the freedom to choose. God loves your soul. He won't force you. But He lets you know if He had His way, if He had His will, you would not perish. But you would have everlasting life this morning. And how does a person make reservations for heaven? Just as I've said, by confessing sin, putting my trust in the Savior that God sent into the world and giving my life to that God and then God coming into your heart and beginning a relationship with him that will go on forever and ever and ever. And it's all there for the asking and it's all there for the receiving. The world that we live in makes fun of personal responsibility. Our culture is strong on it. That's the whole thing. How could God? How could a God? And, we, and people are taking their own personal responsibility for the judgment that we deserve and throwing it on God. We are so nurtured in a blame shifting of this culture that we don't even know how dangerous it is in a relationship with God and with his truth. And so we think that it's his responsibility. It's our responsibility. But the world mocks the idea, not only of God, not only of Jesus in his second coming, not only scorns and scoffs at these things, but that God will one day judge this world. And God rises up in his grace in nine verses in Second Peter to add his voice to the mix, and he speaks to your heart, you personally, as his creation, and says, don't you be fooled by the scoffing you hear. Judgment is serious business. It's not to be laughed at and to be scoffed at because it's a righteous judgment. It is something to be saved from. It's serious Serious business and anyone can be saved from it by simply putting our trust in Jesus let's pray together now I want to ask as we just continue to pray here and in our service if you're here this morning and you have never ever put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins you've never trusted in him to become a Christian I invite you to just simply stand where it is that you're seated, and in standing, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to ask Jesus into your life to receive God's forgiveness, and then I'm going to pray for you. So that's, what I'm, that's what's ahead for you if you stand. God is not willing that you should perish He desires everyone to be saved, you included here this morning. And I need you just to stand where it is that you're seated so we can pray with you to begin this relationship with God that He offers to you and the forgiveness that is found in that relationship. Sometimes people think, well, why do do you have to have me stand? Uh, It's fascinating to realize that everyone Jesus called to follow Him, He called publicly. No secret disciples, none. No secret disciples. And Jesus said, If you confess Me before men, I will confess you before My Father who is in heaven. And He'll do that right now. He said, If you deny Me before men, I will deny you before My Father who is in heaven. Wonderful words, sobering words. I choose what side I'm going to be on on that. And so just stand where it is that you're seated. And I'll lead you in a prayer to enter into God's family this morning. Just stand. God bless you. I see you standing. Anybody else here this morning? It's just you and God. It's just you and God. You've heard a lot of voices in your life. You've heard a lot of things in the course of the years of your life. Now you've got God's voice breaking in on all of that and telling you the truth. And now the important thing is just to listen to Him and obey Him right now in your life. Come into the relationship that He has for you. Anybody else this morning? Just stand. Stand. God's patient. It's patient with you right now. He will he will not force you out of that seat. But he will do everything short of that to draw you to his son. You just stand between you and God. Anybody else? We're praying for you. We want you to be saved today. Anybody else? You can leave this church today knowing that heaven is your home and that you're right with God and you're a part of his family. Amazing. Anybody else? sir, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. And if that prayer represents what you would like to say to God, you're going to invite Jesus into your heart, then I just ask that you repeat it after me. And you don't have to shout it, but repeat it out loud. It's just a public profession of your faith. And so just repeat after me, God, I confess I'm a sinner. And I believe that my sin has separated me from you. But I also believe that you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. I trust in him as my Savior this morning. I honor you in doing that. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for saving me this morning. And I thank you for making it a free gift. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to pray for you. Father, we pray for this man whose soul you love so much that you sent Jesus to die for him. And, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be in the delivery room today, his special day, his big day, to be a part of it and to witness that. We thank you that it is the miracle that his life has become this morning. And, Lord, we pray that you baptize him with your Holy Spirit right now, the fullness of everything that is his in Christ, everything in the book of Acts would become his experience. And we pray, Lord, that you just open your word up to him in a way that has great life and application to him. And we pray that you give him a hunger that's worthy of the book. And as he draws nigh to you, that you would draw nigh to him. Bless him. Keep him, Lord. Use him now for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together. I'd like you to come up afterwards the service and, and see one of the pastors up in front here. We want to get you a Bible and get you some literature to start your walk with the Lord. Fabulous day. Just great what the Lord has done. We're so excited for you. Uh, really are. And, and so take advantage of, of the opportunity. If you're sitting here and you say, I should have stood. I should have stood. I didn't stand. I don't know why I chickened out. I don't. I hate myself for it. Is it too late for me? It isn't. They, they'll, You can come and pray with one of these people up in front. And then the water baptism next Monday, a week from tomorrow, I'll hold you under twice as long, though.